This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 154th edition of the program. Today is August 2nd, and this episode is brought to you by our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors that signed up just this last week, and that includes Alan Ricks, Bill Carr, Chris Von Mock, Solomon Davila, and Trey Palmer. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to help us and sign up to support us, either through Patreon or PayPal, you can visit humanistreport.com support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So on today's episode, Roy Moore becomes Sasha Baron Cohen's latest victim on Who is America? And on the subject of Republicans, conservative commentator Charlie Kirk thinks he put socialists in check with a supposed gotcha question. And we'll also talk about another conservative commentator who almost got red-pilled by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez after attending one of her rallies. Additionally, Attorney General Jeff Sessions introduces a theocratic religious liberty task force, and Donald Trump is threatening to shut down the government if Democrats refuse to fund his border wall he once said Mexico would pay for. And in good news regarding Donald Trump, he decided to attack the Koch brothers on Twitter. We'll talk about that. Additionally, a Koch-funded study on Medicare for All backfired and ended up proving Bernie Sanders right. Now, of course, we'll also tackle corporate Democrats in this episode, specifically a 2020 Democrat who nobody cares about that's running as, quote, a radical centrist. And when it comes to the Democratic Party's response towards progressives, Democrats in Maryland are signaling to Ben Jealous that they might be more comfortable with their Republican governor there than an actual progressive like him. Also, the Democratic Party establishment suggests progressive gubernatorial candidate Abdul El Sayed in Michigan probably shouldn't run because he can't win because he's Muslim. So we'll talk about that, and finally, we'll close the show with an interview with New Hampshire congressional candidate Levy Sanders, who also happens to be the son of the most popular politician in the country. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today. I hope you guys all enjoy the program. So I already know that I am super late to the party on this particular subject, but it was just too good for me to pass up. So by now, you all know that there was a Daily Caller journalist who crashed an Ocasio-Cortez rally, and she almost got red-pilled by her and Cori Bush. So this is the article she penned for the Daily Caller explaining her experience. This is from Virginia Kruta. I saw something truly terrifying. I saw just how easy it would be were I less involved and less certain of our nation's founding and its history to fall for the populist lines they were shouting from that stage. I saw how easy it would be as a parent to accept the idea that my children deserve healthcare and education. I saw how easy it would be as someone who has struggled to make ends meet to accept the idea 
idea that a living wage was a human right. Above all, I saw how easy it would be to accept the notion that it was the government's job to make sure that those things were provided. I watched as both Ocasio-Cortez and Bush deftly chopped America up into demographics, pointed out how those demographics had been victimized under the current system, and then promised to be the voice for those demographics. The movement Ocasio-Cortez shouted knows no zip code, it knows no state, it knows no race, it knows no gender, it knows no documented status. I left the rally with a photo, in part to remind myself of that time I crashed a rally headlined by a socialist, but also in part to remind myself that there, but for the grace of God, go I. Now that last little line there, I feel like the only type of person that would write something like that would be someone who literally smells their own farts, who like bottles it up and smells their own farts or huffs their farts as it comes out of their assholes. So I want to go back to the bullet points that she posted here because that's essentially the overall takeaways. I saw how easy it would be as a parent to accept the idea that my children deserve healthcare and education. So let me get this straight, Virginia. Going into this rally, prior to this rally, you didn't just instinctively think that your children deserved healthcare and education? I mean, what do you think your tax dollars are for? You just give the money to the government and um, don't expect anything in return. I mean, <laughs> and furthermore, people are willing to kill for their children. There's there's just that that evolutionary instinct ingrained in all parents. And she's sitting here. She kind of had this epiphany. I saw how easy it was to accept that my children deserve healthcare and education. It's easy to accept that because your children do deserve healthcare and education. I mean, do progressives actually care more about your children, Virginia, than you do? Because if you don't think your children deserve healthcare and education, I mean, <laughs> I don't know what to say about you. She also said, I saw how easy it would be as someone who has struggled to make ends meet to accept the idea that a living wage was a human right. So prior to this rally, you were okay with individuals working full time and not making a living wage. You're basically in support of slavery. I mean, it's not actual slavery slavery, right? But it's it's wage slavery where you're working and you can barely survive. I mean, it's absolutely insane. I don't I don't get the mindset of individuals like this who couldn't see previously how these things weren't no brainers. And it kind of goes to show you how out of touch she really is, because working class Americans, I mean, if you tell them or ask them rather if they think their kids deserve healthcare and education, they're going to tell you yes. And they will vociferously debate you if you try to contend that their children don't deserve healthcare and education. And understand that in opposing these types of policies that Cori Bush and Ocasio-Cortez are talking about, conservatives are now literally trying to defend the idea that their own children don't deserve healthcare and education. That's the position that they're in now. <laughs> she said she's against the idea of government guaranteeing and paying for these things but virginia your tax dollars are going to the government and you're not getting anything in return i mean don't you think that it's reasonable for you to demand things in return for the tax dollars you're giving to the government i mean imagine if 
you couldn't choose the groceries when you went to the grocery store and each week you gave a store clerk $200 and they chose the groceries for you and they just brought out some raisins. They, you know, spent about $10 of your money on raisins, gave that to you, and then they pocketed the rest of the money, gave it to their friends. Wouldn't you be angry with that? Because clearly raisins aren't nutritional enough to sustain our bodies, and we gave them money fully expecting a balanced nutritional diet in return, but we're not getting that. So, I mean, when you extend that logic to taxes, isn't it equally absurd that we're giving them all of this money? And what are they doing with it? They're funding endless wars. They're giving tax subsidies to big oil. They're giving the rich tax cuts. Aren't you angry with that? I mean, I, I just, I can't get the logic of individuals who are basically okay with the government fucking them over, taking them money and not giving them anything in return. I mean, that's what the social contract is. You give the government money and in exchange, they provide you with services for that money. Aren't you angry that you're not getting anything in return for the tax dollars that you're paying? I am. And a lot of working class Americans are, hence the popularity of individuals like Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, Kaniala Ng. So she wasn't done talking about this rally just yet because she did appear on Fox News. And I want to share the clip with you because it gives us a little bit more insight into her thinking. Daily Callers, Virginia Cruda, thank you so much for being with us. And you wrote an op-ed about it. Tell us why you went to her rally. What was the interest? Thanks for having me. Um, well, I, I went kind of to see what the fuss was about, really, because, I mean, I've been to conservative rallies before. I've been to a Trump speech. I've been to a Ted Cruz rally when he was running for president. And I just kind of wanted to see, you know, why the message was resonating, because really the socialist message is gaining steam within the Democrat Party. So based upon what you saw, why are people drawn to this message? Um, well, I, I was listening to to them talk to Ocasio-Cortez and also to Cori Bush, who she was stumping for in, in St. Louis. And they say things I mean, they talk about things that everybody wants, especially like if you're a parent, they talk about education for your kids, health care for your kids, these the things that you want. And, you know, if you're not really paying attention to how they're going to pay for it or, you know, the rest of that, it's easy to fall into that trap and say, my kids deserve this. And, you know, well, maybe the government should be responsible for helping me with that. Mm -hmm. Virginia, as a conservative, when you're sitting in that audience or standing in that audience and you're listening to that message, how did it make you feel? Were you angry? Were you more drawn to that? I was mostly uncomfortable because I was surrounded by a group of people who were talking about how they had gotten involved because they were tired of being angry all the time. And I'm, it, it seems like so much effort to be angry about everything instead of to focus on what you could do to change it. Okay, so I want to read her quote back because I think this is fascinating. They talk about things that everybody wants, especially like if you're a parent, they talk about education for your kids, healthcare for your kids, things that you want. And, you know, if you're not really paying attention to how they're going to pay for it or the rest of that, it's easy to fall into that trap and say, my kids deserve this. And, you know, well, maybe the government should be responsible for helping me with that. If I saw my mom talking about how she didn't think I deserved healthcare and education, my response would be, fuck you, mom. <laughs> because, I mean, what parent 
doesn't think that their children deserve healthcare and an education. I, it, I honestly, I was flabbergasted when I saw this, and I still can't really collect my thoughts because I was just taken aback by how out of touch people like her are. They're willing to deny healthcare and education to their own children if it means they get to, you know, live in this conservative bubble where the government takes your money and gives you nothing in return for it. Now, what's interesting is that if you really do pay attention to how we pay for these things, you'll see that she's just misinformed. In fact, a Koch-funded study recently came out showing that Medicare for All would cost less than our current system. It would actually save America billions of dollars each year. So clearly we can pay for it. America isn't unique. I mean, it's conservatives who often espouse the talking point. We're the greatest country on earth, right? So for the greatest country on earth, why can't we do what other countries and smaller countries have done? Why are we incapable of doing something that our neighbors to the, to the north have done? We're not incapable. America is just as capable, if not more capable than other countries, because we are the richest nation on earth. Why can't we do it? It's because people like Virginia bought into right-wing propaganda. She bought into propaganda espoused by politicians who are bankrolled by health insurance companies. Now, she talked about this um, with regard to the crowd and how she felt. I was mostly uncomfortable because I was surrounded by a group of people who were talking about how they had gotten involved because they were tired of being angry all the time. It seems like so much effort to be angry about everything instead of what you can do to change it. But Virginia, they were focused on what they could do to change it. They were done with being angry. They wanted to actually affect change, hence why they attended a policy-oriented rally. I mean, it, it just feels like she's trying to be intellectually obtuse and um, not see where they're coming from. Now, with that being said, I will give her credit for kind of putting herself out there and really trying to open herself up to new ideas because I think that that's really important. I think that a lot of us, you know, given the current climate of hyperpolarization, we tend to box ourselves in in our left or right wing echo chambers and we never escape it. So I am actually like... I want to give her credit where it's due for actually trying to hear out Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and trying to hear the argument of her opponents. But at the same time, if she is genuinely curious about understanding where people like Ocasio-Cortez or more specifically where the working class is coming from, you've got to get out of that bubble. You've got to actually listen to people and stop listening to what right-wing Republican Party strategists and conservative think tanks say because... They're in this business to dupe you over because they want to get rich off of it. That's all this is about. So I couldn't not talk about this because I found it fascinating. And, you know, I'll give her credit again for going to this rally. But I think that this was really a learning experience for us as well because we kind of get some insight into the mindset of the modern American conservative. They don't even think their own children deserve healthcare and education, which to me is absurd or maybe they think that their own children deserve healthcare and education but just not that the government should provide it for them so let me ask you this one last thing in the event your child needed a medical procedure that was very expensive and you couldn't afford it out of pocket it was just too much do you not think that the government should assist you with that since you fund the government with your tax dollars do you not think that that's appropriate or even necessary? 
Of course, Virginia wouldn't deny her child health care on the principle of conservatism. Of course you wouldn't. So all we're asking, Virginia, is for our tax dollars to help us out. We want something in exchange for all the money we're giving to government. That's, that's it. It's that simple, really. Conservative Kool-Aid drinker and founder of Turning Point USA, Charlie Kirk, recently appeared on Fox News to add to the ongoing national conversation about socialism. And he said something that was absolutely, basically as idiotic as you'd expect from a right-wing ideologue such as himself. But before I show you the clip, I do want to give you some context about Charlie Kirk and let you know what we're dealing with here. So the first thing you probably need to know is that he's just the prototypical partisan hack. Anything Republicans say is a-okay and anything Democrats do is bad by definition. So for example, he praised Donald Trump for doing something he once criticized Obama for. He states on his last day in office, Obama pardoned the sentences of 330 federal inmates convicted of drug crimes, releasing them back on the streets. But just four days later, he said this about Trump doing the same thing. Trump courageously signs a pardon for Alice Johnson, an elderly woman over sentence for a nonviolent drug charge and her first offense. Obama refused to do this and Trump has stepped up to the plate to right a wrong. So, I mean, it doesn't matter what the policy is. If Republicans do it, it's good. If Democrats do it, it's bad. There's no objectivity whatsoever. Now, Another thing that I think it's important to know about Charlie Kirk is that he's either incredibly disingenuous or a liar, or I think the more likely scenario is that he doesn't even have an elementary grasp of American politics. And to kind of give you some insight into his thinking, this is how he describes the Democratic Party, which is basically a center-right, ideologically conservative political party. You see the Republican Party, which has rightfully become the party of Donald Trump, which is about results, middle America, energy independence, and jobs. You look at the Democrat Party, you know, they're becoming the party of Karl Marx. You know, they're becoming the party of Karl Marx. They're becoming the party of Karl Marx. <laughs> Democrats are becoming the party of Karl Marx. I mean, that pretty much tells you everything you need to know about Charlie Kirk. He takes it a step further than other right-wing hacks. Other right-wing hacks, like Tommy Lahren, will just say, well, look, they, they want to be the party of socialism. They want to turn America into Venezuela. Venezuela. But he takes it a step further and actually says, no, they're actually the party of Karl Marx. That sounds kind of... Dum, 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 dum. So that's Charlie Kirk in a nutshell. Um, this is someone who is incredibly disingenuous. He's just out there to smear the left and promote Republican Party ideas. Now that you kind of have some context about who he is, I do want to get to his comments on socialism because he was talking about just how hypocritical socialist professors in particular are on Jesse Waters' show on Fox News. And this is the gotcha question he posed to socialist professors. If socialist professors really believe the nonsense that they, that they you know, profess, why don't they teach for free? Uh -oh. why, why, why do they sell the books back to the kids and why do they charge so much per credit hour? You know, if they're such benevolent and wonderful, you know, communitarians and socialists, just do it for free. You know, get rid of the profit structure. Be a, be a true example of that, that which in a Marxist society. But of course, you know, it's really interesting. 
those people that hate America, which I believe this is rooted in anti-Americanism. I do too. And what's so unique about America, we're the only country in the world, in the history of the world, where even those who hate it refuse to leave. Hmm. You know, you, 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 I always notice that the biggest proponents of socialism aren't the ones waiting in bread lines. <laughs> if socialist professors really believed the nonsense they profess, why don't they teach for free? Got him. Now, <laughs> judging by his reaction, you can tell that in his head when he said that, he thought he hit it out of the park. And you could see why he kind of got this boost of confidence after he said that, because Jesse Waters' reaction was basically this. But in actuality, logical and rational thinking individuals who are actually educated about social democracy reacted in this way. So to address the substance of his argument, not that there was much there to begin with, this argument is probably one of the dumbest arguments I've heard against socialism because it proves that he has no fucking clue what socialism is. Think about this. Individuals who are social democratic, who are progressive, they're not basically saying, take all of my money. I just want to live off the state. I want to suck off the state's teat. That's not what they're saying. They're essentially saying this. Look, we're going to pay a certain percentage of our tax dollars every single year to the federal government, to state governments. So all we're asking in return is some benefits. It's called public goods. I mean, the state does things with our tax dollars. They create roads. They build bridges. There's a military to defend us from attacks, or in our case, you know, to attack other countries offensively. But for the most part, you know, that's part of the state. That's the state's responsibility is to have a military to do certain things that we pay them to do with our tax dollars. And what we're saying is that our tax dollars aren't benefiting us. You're taking our money and you're funneling it to the military industrial complex you're subsidizing big oil and we're saying enough is enough we want you to take our money and actually do something good maybe the money that we're paying in taxes should benefit us maybe we shouldn't die or go bankrupt if we don't have health insurance maybe we shouldn't be in debt forever for all of our lives if we decide to go to college these are basically the arguments that we're making but what does he do he says well you know if you uh if you are truly socialist then put your money where your mouth is and teach for free well if you're truly a capitalist charlie then stop driving on our public roads. Don't call the fire department if your house is on fire. Don't call the police if somebody's breaking into your home. That's essentially the logic that you're using here. And I get that that argument doesn't make sense, but that's the point because your argument doesn't make sense. The argument that I just said is equally insane just on the opposite side of the spectrum as your argument is. Teachers should teach for free if they believe in socialism. I mean, nobody's advocating for authoritarianism. We're advocating for social democracy, where we simply get a little bit more from our tax dollars. That's it. It's that simple. But of course, even if he understands this, which I don't think he does, I don't think he even has a basic grasp of what socialism is, or even communism for that matter, given that he described Democrats as communists, but even if he knew what this was all about and knew what our argument was, he still would misrepresent it because this is nothing more than a right-wing spear merchant and his whole job 
is to smear the left. Turning Point USA is all about smearing left-wing professors who reportedly, quote, discriminate against conservative students. Now, Anna Kasparian of TYT did a really great piece on this where she basically exposed how he has this watch list for professors that ends up leading to them being harassed and receiving death threats. So this is someone who is just really a piece of shit. I mean, there are individuals on the right who I think actually make more genuine arguments, like Sargon Avocado. I disagree with him on pretty much everything, but at least he's arguing from a place of trying to understand where we're coming from. At least he's trying to dive a little bit deeper into these issues, but this jackass over here just says, Oh, well, if you like socialism, why don't you teach for free? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's fucking insane. So, this guy clearly doesn't know what he's talking about, and the fact that he has a following as large as he does is really sad. It speaks to just how uneducated and misinformed our country really is. In a world of politics dominated by the strange, the deranged, and outright insane, we'll now take a moment to shine a light on the craziest of what politics has to offer. This is your weekly Dose of Stupidity. I learned this with Pizzagate and stuff. You've got admissions and thousands of emails about the kids will be delivered into the hot tub for your pleasure, and then it's the FBI code words for sex with kids off their own Homeland Security manual, and they're talking about $65,000 of succulent hot dogs. Well, are these as good? Uh, oh, God, these are good. You, I had these hot dogs in Hawaii. They were delivered by jet. And let me, it's, it's male prostitutes. And look, Obama's having sex with 10 dudes a day, whatever. <laughs> Obama's having sex with 10 dudes a day, whatever. Obama's having sex with 10 dudes a day, whatever. Obama's having sex with 10 dudes a day, whatever. The point is, is that that's what's going on on your taxpayer time. He's not watching Sports Center three hours a day up there, okay? Okay. And, and, and the report is, you know, he's got, you know, well, I'm not going to get into it on Family Show. Uh, but let's just say Amtrak isn't just a train. Amtrak isn't just a train. I just want to finish by saying your reputation's amazing. I will not let you down. You will be very, very uh, impressed, I hope. <laughs> You're so dumb. You are really dumb. For real. Stupidity. So as you all know, Ben Jealous is one of the higher profile progressives and he recently defeated a corporate Democrat in Maryland's Democratic Party gubernatorial primary. So now he's set to face off against the Republican governor, who's the incumbent, Larry Hogan. And some Democrats aren't too enthusiastic about him winning and some are even refusing to endorse him. And they've gone out of their way to even praise the state's Republican governor. As Robert McCartney of the Washington Post reports, Maryland gubernatorial nominee Ben Jealous needs all the help he can get to unseat incumbent Governor Larry Hogan, but he's facing resistance from some fellow Democrats uneasy with his left-wing platform. Montgomery County Executive Isaiah Leggett is declining to endorse Jealous for now because of concerns that Jealous's positions on taxes, school funding, 
and Amazon.com's second headquarters would penalize Leggett's constituents in the state's most populous jurisdiction. Long-serving Senate President Thomas V. Mike Miller Jr., an influential moderate, offered only tepid backing for Jealous while praising Hogan for governing from the middle. Other top Maryland Democrats, while voicing strong support for Jealous, disagree with him on issues such as his support for state-based single-payer health care. They include U.S. Senator Benjamin Cardin, Representative Dutch Ruppersberger, and House Speaker Michael E. Bush, all of whom say they favor the goal of universal health care but question whether Maryland can afford it. Now, some party leaders are urging Jealous to soften his stances to improve his chances of beating Hogan, who enjoys high ratings in opinion. Opinion polls. In addition to supporting Medicare for All, Jealous favors debt-free college, a 29% increase in teachers' pay, shrinking the prison population, and legalizing marijuana. Everybody in the Democratic establishment is concerned that if he doesn't moderate himself, he has no chance against Hogan, said a Democratic strategist who spoke on the condition of anonymity because the topic was politically sensitive. Now, when it comes to the Democratic Party holdouts who are refusing to endorse Ben Jealous, they will be reportedly meeting with him relatively soon, but just the mere fact that they waited this long to even meet with him, and even if an endorsement is still likely, they're still showing their cards. I mean, they're going out of their way to praise the state's Republican governor, which obviously, it hurts Democratic Party voters who might be excited about Ben Jealous. It gets... Democratic Party voters in Maryland to think, well, maybe since people in my own party are praising our centrist governor, maybe it's the case that I don't need to come out and support Ben Jealous since everything is okay currently. And that's absurd. It really, it kind of makes clear something that I thought about before but wasn't convinced of. It makes clear the reality that some Democrats are more comfortable losing and having Republicans in control than winning with progressives. This is becoming more clear because think about this. If you win, if your party's in control, that's a lot of pressure. You've got to actually deliver public policy that will appease your constituents. So it might be easier for them to continue sitting there as the opposition party doing nothing, collecting donations from multinational corporations and millionaires and billionaires and not doing shit. I mean, this is something that I've thought about with regard to Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, but I was never fully convinced that they actually personally preferred losing to Republicans than winning with progressives. But I think that this is becoming increasingly clear. They might not really be interested in winning. Now, again, I, I can only speculate about the intentions of some individuals, and certainly if if I brought this argument to Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and some of the Democrats quoted here in this article, they'd say, no, 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 they'd, they'd vociferously deny that accusation, right? But you have to look at their actions. Actions speak volumes. And if they really wanted to win, you'd think that they'd learn from the 2016 election and just run unapologetically progressive candidates and embrace progressivism, embrace people like Ben Jealous, who are carrying on the mantle of Bernie Sanders. But they're not only not embracing them, they are shunning them. In races all across the country, the DCCC and Democratic Party establishment, they are backing corporate Democrats over progressives. I mean, look at the race in Colorado between Jason Crow and Levi Tilleman. Steny Hoyer literally tried to bully Levi Tilleman out of that particular race because he thought that 
the corporate Democrat had the better chance of winning because he was collecting more money. Look at the race in New Hampshire's first congressional district, where the DCCC is funneling money to a corporate Democrat, refusing to hold debates. I mean, this is really a sad reality. So either the Democratic Party is painfully, painfully stupid because they continue listening to idiotic Democratic Party strategists who couldn't tell their asshole from their own elbow, or they just simply don't want to win and they're playing dumb on purpose. I don't know which is more true, and certainly this isn't applicable to all Democrats, but I think that they're really showing their cards here and their actions in refusing to come out and support Ben Jealous unequivocally. I mean, it's them who always preach unity to all of us, but we're learning more and more that it's a sham. Look at the race in New York 14, where Joe Crowley received the endorsement of Joe Lieberman on a third-party ticket, the working family's ticket, and he's still not taking his name off of the ballot. I mean, look, if they want to win, they've got to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. They claim that they want to win, but I don't believe them. And think about the Democratic Party strategist, um, that quote, the anonymous Democratic Party strategist, who said everybody in the Democratic establishment is concerned that if he doesn't moderate himself, meaning Ben Jealous, he has no chance against Hogan. But do you not get the fact that progressive policies are overwhelmingly popular? All of these policy issues that people like Ben Jealous are promoting, they're popular. Medicare for all, tuition-free public colleges and universities, legalizing marijuana. These are things that will actually excite the base. Every single campaign between a Democrat and a conservative is always going to be a get-out-the-vote campaign. It's always going to be a get-out-the-vote campaign. The Democratic Party's electoral success is always contingent on how many voters they galvanize to get out and vote for them every single time. But in refusing to endorse Ben Jealous, or at least voicing reluctance to endorse him, they're showing, well, you know, maybe it might be easier for them to just lose and have a Republican in charge since a Republican might be easier to work with since he'll be less offensive to the ideas of their corporate donors than someone like Ben Jealous, who doesn't take corporate money. So it's, it's just really, it's disheartening to see the Democratic Party so resistant to change they call themselves the resist the resistance, but they're only resistant to progressive policy ideas. And it, it's all the more reason why we can't just push the party to the left. We have to take it over and clean house. Every single individual in the Democratic Party establishment currently needs to be out of a job if we ever stand a chance or want to stand a chance against Republicans again. Abdul El-Sayed is a progressive Democrat currently competing in a Democratic Party gubernatorial primary in the state of Michigan. And currently, he's received quite a bit of national coverage and his campaign is quickly gaining momentum. So he had the endorsement of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She recently actually went to Michigan to stump for him. And he also just picked up the biggest endorsement yet. Bernie Sanders, who states, I'm proud to endorse Abdul El-Sayed for governor of Michigan. As governor, Dr. El-Sayed will fight for a government in Lansing that represents all the people and not just wealthy special interests. Under Abdul El-Sayed's leadership, Michigan can help lead the nation in guaranteeing health care for all through a Medicare for all single-payer type system, tuition-free public colleges and universities, a minimum wage of $15 per hour, and strong environmental protections. Now, if you're wondering why 
progressives like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, and myself are so excited about Abdul's campaign, well, instead of telling you, I'll just show you. I'm Dr. Abdul El Sayed. We all know why our health care and our auto insurance are so expensive, why our air and our water poison our kids, corporate greed. My pledge is always to put your needs over their profits. It's why we don't take a dime of corporate money. We stand for Michicare, state-level Medicare for all, to reverse the rates on auto insurance and to de-devoss our public schools. I'm asking for your vote on August 7th. Together, let's build a Michigan for people and by people. So that 30-second ad tells you more about Abdul than most corporate Democrats who, I mean, you can hear them speak for minutes. They just drone on and they speak in nothing but platitudes. But here we have someone who's telling you everything you need to know about him in just 30 seconds. He supports Medicare for all at the state level. He's not taking corporate money. So, I mean, this is the real deal. He, he's someone who's truly progressive. So naturally, since he's so progressive, well, the Democratic Party establishment wants absolutely nothing to do with him. Now, if you'll remember just a few months ago, we learned that the second highest ranking Democrat in the House, Steny Hoyer, actually tried to bully progressive Levi Tilleman out of a race in Colorado because they thought that his corporate Democratic opponent, Jason Crow, was more electable. Now, when Democrats talk about electability, really what they're talking about is your ability to win if you raise more money by taking corporation uh, or taking contributions rather from large multinational corporations from billionaires from millionaires that's what they care about and, and more more specifically if you're taking corporate money then you're going to raise more money and odds are you're going to end up raising money for your colleagues in the house so that's really all that they care about now similar to the situation in colorado where steny hoyer kind of gave levi tilleman a stern talking to well, there were some powerful individuals within the Democratic Party establishment that talked to Abdul, and in an interview with Vice, Abdul states that they gave him a really interesting reason as to why he shouldn't run, or he presumably shouldn't run, even if they didn't explicitly say that. Here's what he said they told him. You can imagine these folks in power being like, oh, no, 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 this can't work. Um, but he's brown and Muslim. He can't win. So you think it's really because they think you're unelectable? I literally had, I had, we'll just say very powerful people um, who call a lot of shots in the party uh, sit me down and say, we think you're great. You just, you know, it's not that we're racist. It's just that we think people outside of Southeast Michigan are racist, and so you can't win. See? Makes sense. And they're like, no, not how it works. Thank you. Uh, and if you think I'm ever going to stop, you got the wrong guy. Now, I'm glad that, you know, that that clearly didn't get Abdul down. I feel like if I if somebody told me that, I would be pretty discouraged just because, I mean, if you're running in this party who claims to be egalitarian and progressive, you wouldn't expect them to say something like that to you. But the fact that they said it is still a really big deal. This is this is disgusting. Think about this for a party that champions diversity and claims that their diversity is their biggest strength well they're not so subtly suggesting that maybe abdul shouldn't be running here maybe he should drop out and let his corporate democratic opponent win because he can't win because he's brown and he's muslim and again it's not that we're racist we'd vote for you abdul but it's just that we think that voters are racist so we can't run people who are muslim who are black, who are gay, because, you know, voters might not go for that.
first of all, voters opted for Barack Obama in 2008. He won Michigan, a state that Abdul is running in. But furthermore, if you are willing to cater to the tribalism of the voting electorate, then you're no better than them. Now, of course, I don't know how this conversation went, but essentially, from what I gathered, the overall implication there was they're trying to nudge him in that direction, drop a couple of hints. Hey, Abdul, look, you're not going to win. Take it from us. We know what we're talking about. You're not going to win because you're a Muslim. It's that simple. So, you know, we have this great corporate Democrat her name is Gretchen. Maybe you should just drop out and endorse her. Get all that progressive momentum behind you, behind her. That would really help us out. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Abdul. Can you please do that for us? But you know what's interesting is that Abdul, he hasn't made this race about his identity at all. He's stayed glued to the policies. He hasn't gone out there saying, I'm a Muslim. Vote for me if you favor diversity. He's just talked about the issues affecting people in Michigan. But Democrats, I mean, even if they're not technically Islamophobic or racist themselves, this proves that they're willing to resort to racism to suppress progressives. They're willing to stoop lower than they've ever stooped before in order to suppress progressive momentum. So when it's politically expedient for them, they'll accuse progressives of being racist, sexist, Bernie bros, or they might just be racist or Islamophobic themselves, whatever will suit them better in the particular political race. It really all depends on the strategy that will be most effective at marginalizing progressive voices. That's what this is about. But the fact that they were willing to make that suggestion to Abdul, it's it's downright fucking disgusting. It really is. It's like me saying, hey, look, I, you know, I'm not racist, but I don't want my neighbors to be black because there's a lot of people in the neighborhood who are racist and probably wouldn't be down for them. And I'm just looking out for them. I mean, that's, that's essentially the argument that you're making and they don't even care how it comes across. They don't even care if they are bending over backwards to appease racists. And really, I, I don't necessarily believe that they don't like Abdul because they're Islamophobic. I think that they don't like Abdul because he doesn't take corporate cash. And if he gets elected, then that's not going to be great for the Democratic Party's corporate donors, for their donors in the health insurance industry. So, I mean, look, if you were wondering how low the Democratic Party would go, they've gotten even lower. It's a new low for them, really. So if you don't support a candidate who is a woman, woman of color, or a Muslim, you're a bigot. But if you do support a candidate who is a Muslim or a woman or gay, well, then you're making it more likely that a Republican will win because, you know, Americans are just too racist to accept this level of diversity, even if Obama was a two-term president. I mean, this is this is something that usually I would be angered by something like this, but it was just really disheartening because I'm not, you know, I'm not surprised with the dirty tactics that the Democratic Party establishment will use against progressives, but this is really just, I mean, to resort to Islamophobia to try to stifle Abdul's campaign, it's fucking disgusting, and whoever talked to him should be ashamed of themselves.
Mitch Landrieu is the former mayor of New Orleans and likely 2020 Democratic presidential contender who absolutely nobody in this country is excited about. And he recently gave his thoughts to Jake Tapper on CNN about what the Democratic Party can do to be successful going forward. And as you'll see here, his thoughts are completely idiotic. Are you concerned at all about your party, as critics say? lurching to the left? Well, first of all, I don't speak for the National Democratic Party. As you know, I was the mayor of the city of New Orleans. Uh, so having said that, I have always talked about governing from the middle. I'm what they call a radical centrist. There are not many of us left anymore. Uh, and yeah, it is really important for us to make sure that if we are given the responsibility to govern, that we govern in a pragmatic way, in a big tent way that makes sense. I don't think abolishing ICE is a good idea, primarily because when police departments get out of the way, do the wrong thing or governed in the wrong way. You don't say get rid of the police department, you reform the police department. We are in fact a nation of immigrants, we know that. We're also a, a, a nation of laws. And I do think that Congress has been remiss in not passing comprehensive immigration reform. But it does have to be common sense. It has to be thoughtful. It has to protect the border while at the same time making sure uh, that everybody is, is dealt with in a constitutional way. Well, I, do, I, do, I do believe yeah. uh, very clearly that separating families from children was was not a smart thing. It was a cruel thing. That really is not who we are, and there's a much better way to do that. As a centrist, as somebody who believes in, in governing from the center, are you concerned to see the Democratic Party, which you, you and your family have been proud members of for, for generations, going to the left on a lot of these issues? Well, I think that what you'll see, you'll see this with the Republicans and the Democrats. It happens every election cycle. The party themselves will get tested from the left, the middle, uh, and the right. Both parties are going to do that. And of course, that's going to happen to the Democratic Party, too. It's clear that President Trump is going to be the nominee of the Republican Party. And you will see a family fight on the Democratic side. And you see the party getting pulled to the left. You'll have people from the middle. You have people to the right of the party. And that's the way it's always going to be. Uh, if the Democrats want to win, they're going to have to govern responsibly. They're going to have to govern with common sense. They're going to have to think about what people in America want, which is essentially to have a great opportunity and great responsibility and a better chance for themselves and for their kids. So I think that there were probably like four or five times when I facepalmed during that interview because it was just, I mean, I don't, I don't even know where to start. So first of all, I'll just say that radical centrism is not a thing. That term is an oxymoron, not a thing. You can't be a radical centrist because by definition, if you're a centrist, you're in the middle of the opposing extremes. But in actuality, he's not a centrist. He is center-right. Because at a time when the Overton window in America has shifted so far to the right, you're not governing from the center if you think you're in the center. You're actually governing from the right. Now also, there's this underlying implication in what he said about how basically centrists such as himself are being marginalized. Because, you know, I'm a radical centrist and there's just not much of us left. But as you can see from this thumbnail here, this is a photo of him attending the Third Way Democrat Conference called Opportunity 2020, where a bunch of Democratic Party elites and fundraisers and donors all got together for one giant circle jerk to talk about how they can defeat progressivism and more specifically Bernie Sanders in 2020. So the mere fact that there's enough of you for this type of convention proves you wrong. But also, look at the Democratic Party. They're a center-right, if not conservative party. You have individuals like Joe Manchin, who basically side with Republicans more so than Democrats. You have individuals who are in control in party leadership, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, who are the definition of center-right politicians. Chuck Schumer, 
even opposed President Obama's Iran deal. Nancy Pelosi won't support Medicare for all, and she calls herself a progressive. So to claim that these centrist voices are becoming more and more marginalized, that's just fundamentally untrue. Now, I do want to give you some additional context because he was talking about ICE. He made the reference to ICE, and this was because when Jake Tapper was framing the question, he was going to ask him, ask him about the Democratic Party moving to the left, uh, seemingly moving to the left according to Jake Tapper, which is not true, but he was basically bringing up how individuals were getting more vocal about wanting to abolish ICE. And that led Mitch Landrieu to talk about ICE, and he said this, I don't think abolishing ICE is a good idea primarily because when police departments get out of the way, do the wrong thing, or govern in the wrong way, you don't say get rid of the police department, you reform the police department. But that's actually a false equivalence because ICE isn't like police departments. It is an additional agency that's on top of the agencies that already exist that tackle immigration. ICE is more like if a police agency was created specifically to tackle prostitution, just for argument's sake, and that agency ended up doing tons of abuses instead of cracking down on prostitution, really there's rampant abuse where individuals in the agency are abusing sex workers and they're not actually doing anything meaningful that curtails prostitution. Take them all to the station for oral and anal sex with a prostitute. Half of them didn't even use a condom. Don't you stupid kids know the diseases you can catch? Hand me that evidence bag. So you don't need ICE when we already have government agencies that tackles the issue of immigration, just like you wouldn't need an additional government agency with regard to the police department to tackle prostitution because there's already a wing of state and local governments that tackles prostitution. So you don't need another agency in there making matters worse. Now, one thing that he said that I think he wanted praise for was he said, I do believe very clearly that separating families from children was not a smart thing. It was a cruel thing. Can we get a slow clap for Mitch Landrieu there? He actually finally took an unequivocal stance against one right-wing policy. How brave of you. I mean, <laughs> for him to come out against a policy that is borderline fascist with regard to immigration. I mean, it just shows that you're a coward. If that's the only thing that you're willing to call out Donald Trump for, then you're not a centrist. You are just a right-wing enabler, Mitch. Now, Jake Tapper asked him if he's concerned the Democratic Party is moving too far to the left, and this was Mitch's response. If the Democrats want to win, they're going to have to govern responsibly. They're going to have to govern with common sense. They're going to have to think about what people in America want, which is essentially to have a great opportunity, great responsibility, and have a better chance for themselves and for their kids. Now, if you remove those words from the context of him discussing centrism, these are platitudes that are so meaningless they could still be applied to progressivism or conservatism and kind of fit. But the overall point that he was trying to make is that, look, if Democrats want to be successful, here's what they've got to do. They've got to actually be willing to work with Republicans. They've got to govern from the middle. They've got to run candidates who aren't these firebrand progressives, but candidates who are more conservative, maybe, who are willing to reach across the aisle and recruit Republicans, even, if they want to be electorally successful. 
Oh wait, we actually just tried that in 2016, and guess what happened? Democrats fell flat on their fucking faces, Mitch. So, I mean, it's like, they don't, they don't grasp that we just ran a centrist. We just had a centrist in the White House for two terms, and guess what happened? The party has been decimated, but they still don't get it. They still don't get it. And it's mind-boggling to me. These are people who want to run for president, and they know nothing about politics. They're so detached from the struggle of working-class Americans that they actually think that we want more centrism. No, we don't want centrism because if you're in the center of a political system with an Overton window shifted far to the right, then you're just conceding to Republicans. And furthermore, even if the goal was centrist policies, you don't start negotiation by already conceding. You start from the left, so you end up in the center. But they don't, they don't get it. Basic concepts with regard to governing go straight over their heads. So, I mean, I can't wait to see Mitch Landrieu run because if he honestly thinks he's going to excite anyone with this milquetoast brand of <laughs> neoliberalism that might even be uh, more milquetoast than what we've seen previously from Democrats, he's in for a rude awakening. A new study on Medicare for All conducted by George Mason University's Mercatus Center, which was presumably supposed to initially be a hit piece on Medicare for All, ended up inadvertently proving our point for us. So according to Addie Barrett of Think Progress, a single-payer Medicare for All system would reduce the amount the U.S. spends on healthcare by more than $2 trillion, a Koch Brothers-funded study released Monday found. Research by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, a libertarian think tank backed by the Koch brothers, projected that the Medicare for All plan championed by Senator Bernie Sanders would cost the government $32.6 trillion over 10 years. The highly critical report found that even doubling all federal individual and corporate income taxes would not cover the costs of Sanders' Medicare for All plan. The study did conclude, however, that Medicare for All would result in significant savings for the government because of lower prescription drug costs, saving $846 billion over the next decade. Streamlined administrative costs under the plan would save another $1.6 trillion, the researchers at the Mercatus Center found. When we talk about a Medicare for All system, it's important to discuss the costs in the context of what the U.S. already spends on health care. As of 2016, national health expenditures, which includes federal spending, state Medicaid programs, and private employer health care spending, totaled $3.3 trillion per year, according to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. That means that over the next decade, the U.S. is projected to spend more than $33 trillion plus inflation on healthcare services without any changes to our current healthcare system, significantly more than Mercatus's estimated $32.6 trillion cost to the federal government over the next 10 years. That was uh, certainly an unexpected uh, consequence of a Coke-funded study. Now, the way that conservatives have been trying to spin the results of this study is to really emphasize that cost of $32.6 trillion. So, you know, they've been screaming, Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan is going to cost $32.6 trillion. But what are they leaving out? Well, our current healthcare system will actually cost more over the next decade. Our current plan, you know, if it, if it everything stays the same, will end up costing $33 trillion. So, going to Medicare for All 
therefore, will save America money. Billions of dollars per year, in fact. So this, this is great. I mean, when the Koch brothers end up doing something that inadvertently ends up making our argument for us, um, you know that we are on the right track. And right-wingers, they're going to have to scramble if they truly want to compete with our ideas. Because not only is Medicare for All now supported by more than 60% of Americans, but now studies are concluding that, yeah, you know what? We actually can pay for Medicare for All. It's a great time to be a progressive. Now, since the Koch brothers are in part responsible for funding this study, they, they certainly donate a lot of money, but not all of it. But I mean, for the most part, they were behind this study, which, again, was probably supposed to be a hit piece on Medicare for All. But Bernie Sanders decided to come out and troll them by publicly thanking the Koch brothers for funding this particular study. So <laughs> here's what he said. Let me thank the Koch brothers of all people for sponsoring a study that shows that Medicare for All would save the American people $2 trillion over a 10-year period. I suspect that that is not what the Koch brothers intended to do, but that is what is in the study of the Mercatus Center, an organization that is significantly funded by the Koch brothers. At a time when the United States spends far more per capita on healthcare than any other country on earth. Almost 18% of our GDP. A Medicare for all healthcare system would save the average family significant sums of money. It will do that by substantially reducing the administrative costs now taking place as a result of the billing, bureaucracy, and insatiable greed within the insurance industry whose main function in life is not to make people well, but to make stockholders incredibly rich. If we can get rid of the profiteering, the dysfunction, and the incredible waste within the current healthcare system, if we get rid of the advertising and the high-priced compensation packages of healthcare executives, we can save hundreds of billions of dollars each and every year. Medicare for All will also significantly reduce the rapidly escalating cost of prescription drugs. Depending on income, an individual may pay a little bit more in taxes to finance Medicare for All, but they will save thousands of dollars each and every year because they will no longer be paying premiums, deductibles, or co-payments to the private for-profit companies that now run our healthcare system. Today, under our current dysfunctional healthcare system, believe it or not, it costs more than $28,000 a year to provide healthcare to the typical family of four. Those costs will go down not up under a Medicare for all system. Here is the bottom line. If every major country on earth can guarantee healthcare to all and achieve better healthcare outcomes while spending substantially less per capita than we do, please do not tell me that the United States of America cannot do the same. Needless to say, there is huge opposition to this legislation from the powerful special interests that profit from the current wasteful healthcare system we have today. The insurance companies, the drug companies, Wall Street and the Koch brothers are devoting a lot of money to lobbying, campaign contributions, and television ads to defeat this proposal. But they are on the wrong side of history. Guaranteeing healthcare as a right is important to the American people, not just from a moral and financial perspective. It also happens to be 
what the majority of the American people want. In the last poll that I saw, 63% of Americans now support moving to a Medicare for all system. The time is long overdue for the United States to join every other industrialized country and guarantee healthcare to all in a cost-effective manner. And that is what Medicare for all is about. So that was great. That was very informative. I think that Bernie Sanders is the only person in the history of human existence that's able to troll someone while still sticking to policy substance. That's that's a really unique talent there. So look, what he's saying is it's correct. And more and more, I think that we're going to start to see more progressive or not progressives, more conservatives rather come on board with Medicare for all. There's really no argument that is logical, that's based in reality and empiricism that is going to back up the argument against Medicare for all. Individuals who aren't on board with Medicare for all, it's just politicians for the most part who are taking money from health insurance companies. And if they back Medicare for all, then that existentially threatens health insurance companies. And as a result, that would hurt their chances of getting reelected because they're going to lose out on thousands of dollars from these companies who contribute to their campaigns. So regardless, Medicare for all is the morally right thing to do. And as we continue to hear people like Joe Scarborough make this hacky argument against, oh, we can't possibly pay for it. Medicare, Medicaid, you know, these are programs that are fiscally unsustainable. I think as progressives, we all need to come together and form some sort of cohesive response. And certainly I'm going to put my foot forward in trying to do that. I'm going to bring on someone pretty soon to the show who's going to explain as clear as day how we pay for Medicare for all. Because look, we know we have the right moral argument. And now certainly we have even more evidence that fiscally our argument for Medicare for all is more sound. But we need to basically take that argument and make it more marketable because this is this is something that's very complex and convoluted and it's difficult for ordinary political observers to grasp so we need to we need to formulate some sort of argument that makes sense to people in terms of paying for medicare for all so i'm going to try to do that and you know i'm going to continue to push these types of studies that prove our point for us i mean i'm a little bit reluctant i haven't dived into the details of this particular study but i linked to it in the description if you want to do that i'd I'd, you know certainly encourage you to do so but other studies from more trusted sources like the kaiser family foundation i would probably feel more comfortable promoting those studies since we know that their intentions are more pure and they're really striving for objectivity but with this study you know be a little bit skeptical because, again, it's intended to prove their point for them that Medicare for all is bad. But I mean, objectively, they just couldn't do it. So look, at the end of the day, this is good news. Um, <laughs> I guess I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll expand off of Bernie Sanders here. And I will, I will thank the Koch brothers for once for doing something that wasn't necessarily intended to be good or done for altruistic reasons, but for doing something that backfired horrifically against them. So every week on Sasha Baron Cohen's Who is America on Showtime, he always manages to dupe politicians into saying something completely absurd, and certainly this episode was no exception. He got Trump supporters to agree to doing things that were, we'll just say, 
peculiar. So I won't spoil the entire episode for you, but I think that the most newsworthy clip that came out of the program this week had to be just some good old-fashioned trolling. And this week, his latest victim was this dipshit, Roy Moron. And as you'll recall, Roy Moore is a failed Alabamian politician and accused pedophile. Now, he was talking to Sasha Baron Cohen's Israeli military character about why Alabama is a state that's an unequivocal supporter of the state of Israel. And Cohen told him about innovative new technology that's coming out of Israel. And one piece of said technology was a wand that is able to detect a particular enzyme found only in perverts. <laughs> so you kind of see where this is going. Now, Cohen's character explained how this device was used to protect children from perverts. And this is what happened next. Simple to use. You just switch it on. And because uh, neither of us are sex offenders, then it makes absolutely nothing. You just put it on. You put it nearby. Wait, this, this is obviously a problem. Hold on. Hold on. It must be faulty. Uh, sorry, is this your jacket? Yes. Uh, did you lend the jacket to somebody else, maybe? No. no. I've been married for 33. Sure. I never had an accusation of such things. I am not accusing you at all. This is well, not... Well, then, if this is an instrument, I... That certainly, I'm not a pedophile, okay? No, but the machine is... The well, machine I don't works. know. The, maybe Israeli technology hasn't developed properly. This is 99.8% accurate. Well, it is not saying that you are a pedophile, of course not. I am simply cutting this conversation right now. No, no, Thank no. Thank you. I... <laughs> this is quickly becoming my favorite show on television just because for someone as disgusting both politically and personally as Roy Moore to see him trolled in just a genius way like that it honestly warmed my heart <laughs> so um I don't really have much to say about this particular clip I honestly just wanted to show it to you because I like shitting on Roy Moore I think he's one of the more disgusting examples of Republican Party extremism and just, you know, how far the party has fallen as a whole. Now, what's interesting is that Roy Moore was very defensive for obvious reasons. He said that he's never been accused. He's been married for 33 years, but you have been accused, not just by one individual or two individuals, but by multiple individuals who said you preyed on them when they were as young as the age of 14, which is absolutely just disgusting and perverted. So, of course, it was the case that, you know, he didn't like that this supposed pervert wand detected that he was, in fact, a pervert. Now, I don't get how he actually believed that this wand was somehow something that worked. It reminds me of that scene in The Office where um, Jim sent Dwight Gator, which is a wand that you wave over people and it beeps if it detects that they're gay. This is really what... I was reminded by when I saw this clip, it was just, I mean, I don't get how, <laughs> how you can think that this actually works. And maybe it was the case that he didn't think this worked. Uh, maybe he knew it was bullshit, hence why he left and kind of, you know, maybe the red flags went up in his head and he knew he was being trolled and like other dipshits who were on this program. But either way, I thought it was absolutely hilarious. 
Now, ever since this aired, Roy Moore hasn't actually said anything in response to what happened on the program. However, before the episode aired, he wasn't too happy about it, knowing that he was the victim of a prank. So according to TMZ, Moore said even before it aired, he would consider suing Showtime if it airs a defamatory attack on my character. He also dismissed Cohen's comedy as trickery, deception, and dishonesty. So really, his response is in line with what other people said. I know that there were rumors that Jason Spencer, the uh, state lawmaker that bared his ass on the last episode, I did a video about this, he also reportedly threatened to sue Cohen. There's been other Republican politicians that threatened to sue Cohen. We know that um, Sarah Palin was not too happy about being duped. So this is kind of the typical response. Uh, but I'm certainly expecting him to <laughs> to dupe some more politicians over. Um, all that I've seen from this show has been absolutely hilarious. He even makes fun of liberals. He has, you know, a Hillary supporting character, which is kind of an SJW, which is also hilarious. So look, he he pulls no punches, but for the most part, he really does a great job at revealing just how crazy the Republican Party is. And in this instance, he didn't necessarily get Roy Moore to say anything any more insane than he already says pretty frequently, but he certainly made a fool out of Roy Moore. And if anybody deserves to be made fun of, it's Roy Moore. Attorney General and Keebler elf doppelganger Jeff Sessions recently announced the creation of a religious liberty task force that gives people who are religious even more power in this country than they already have. Now, even though the prevalence of religious dogma has thankfully continued to decline over the years, well, as you can see by these findings from Gallup, the overwhelming majority of the country still identifies as either a Protestant, Christian, or Catholic, and a slim majority of people still say that religion is very important to them. But in spite of all the facts, in spite of those statistics, Jeff Sessions frames Christians as a marginalized community in justifying this particular task force. As Lydia Wheeler of The Hill explains, Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced Monday that the Department of Justice is creating a religious liberty task force. Sessions said the task force will help the department fully implement the religious liberty guidance it issued last year. The guidance was a byproduct of President Trump's executive order directing agencies to respect and protect religious liberty and political speech. Sessions said on Monday that the task force will ensure all Justice Department components are upholding that guidance in the cases they bring and defend, the arguments they make in court, the policies and regulations they adopt, and how we conduct our operations. Sessions said the cultural climate in this country, and in the West more generally, has become less hospitable to people of faith in recent years, and as a result, many Americans have felt their freedom to practice their faith has been under attack. We've seen nuns order to buy contracts. Receptives. We've seen U.S. Senators ask judicial and executive branch nominees about dogma, even though the Constitution explicitly forbids a religious test for public office. We've all seen the ordeal faced so bravely by Jack Phillips, he said, referring to the Colorado baker who took his case to the Supreme Court after he was found to have violated the state's anti-discrimination laws for refusing to make a cake for a same-sex wedding. Sessions said the guidance he issued in October lays out 20 fundamental 
fundamental principles for the executive branch to follow, including the principles that free exercise means a right to act or to abstain from action, and that government shouldn't impugn people's motives or beliefs. Religious Americans are no longer an afterthought, he said. So every single thing that he said in trying to justify this religious liberty task force, it reinforced this idea of Christians are the victims. It's the Christian persecution complex, where if they're not able to impose their views on you, then they're the victims. So what he's saying here is religious individuals, people of faith, well, they're increasingly under attack as the West has generally become less hospitable to their views. But when you go to the examples here that he cites, like the Colorado baker who was sued for refusing to make a cake for a same-sex couple, which is, by the way, a service he offers to heterosexual couples, so it's a clear-cut case of discrimination. Well, according to Jeff Sessions, the lawsuit against him constituted an attack on his religious freedom. It's not that this baker is in the wrong for using his religion as a justification to discriminate against same-sex couples. It's that, really, he's the victim. So this is basically the idea that evangelicals have been promoting for decades now. And really, what this is about is discriminating against members of the LGBTQ community. And I think that the author of an article from The Daily Beast named Tim Tiemann really does a great job at laying out how this religious liberty task force will function in practice. If you are opposed to marriage equality or just dislike or disapprove of LGBT people generally, the Trump administration just gave you the green light to go ahead and refuse to serve them in your businesses or help them with medical care. If an LGBT person wants or needs to use your service, no problem. Tell them to shove off. The attorney general is right behind you. So in other words, if you're a gay or trans person and your physician refuses to treat you on the basis of your gender or sexual identity, well, that's just religious liberty. If you go to a store and you're denied a service that heterosexual couples or heterosexual individuals are otherwise offered, well, you're not being discriminated against. That's just religious liberty. And if you try to push back against that notion, then you're discriminating against Christians because you're not allowing them to discriminate against you. Do you see how this backwards logic works? He's essentially advocating for us to tolerate intolerance. And if we don't tolerate intolerance, then we're not welcoming of Christianity and the views of religious individuals. So for those in the mainstream media wondering how an administration headed by a serial adulterer who's openly mocked Mike Pence's religiosity and violates everything evangelicals previously purported to care about is able to maintain support of religious people in this country, it's because of things like this. He's given them an abundance of policy concessions and this is why evangelicals support Donald Trump. This is why they are one of the most loyal Voting, voting blocks in this country with regard to this administration. It's because of things like this. He's the individual in this country that has been maybe even more successful than George W. Bush at actually carrying out policies that appease Christian fundamentalists. And Donald Trump might actually get what evangelicals have wanted for a really long time. The overturning of Roe v. Wade with the Supreme Court appointment of Brett Kavanaugh. So that's why they love him and they're never going to leave his side. But I mean, in spite of all of this, you know, his supporters will still claim, his diehards really will claim, that he can't possibly be an enemy of LGBTQ people because he once held up an LGBT flag. So that automatically makes him an ally. <laughs> well, you could put lipstick on a pig and guess what? 
it's still a pig. So what's happening here is we're all being gaslighted. All of us are being gaslighted. He's telling us that this is about religious liberty when really this is about religious supremacy and the power of religious individuals to still discriminate against marginalized groups. And it's a thinly veiled agenda that you don't have to dig too deep to find. That's what the Keebler elf has been pushing for throughout the entirety of his career. And he's not going to stop now. In fact, he's going to capitalize on this opportunity now that he has power, now that he's the attorney general, to do what he's been wanting to do all along. Make America the Christian equivalent of Saudi Arabia. So we might actually be living in the twilight zone because i woke up checked twitter and i found a tweet from donald trump and i can't believe i'm going to say this that actually kind of warmed my cynical liberal heart he went after the Koch brothers and he went after them kind of hard so he states the globalist Koch brothers who have become a total joke in real republican circles are against strong borders and powerful trade. I never sought their support because I don't need their money or bad ideas. They love my tax and regulation cuts, judicial picks, and more. I made them richer. Their network is highly overrated. I have beaten them at every turn. They want to protect their companies outside the U.S. from being taxed. I'm for America first and the American worker. A puppet for no one. Two nice guys with bad ideas. Make America great again. Wow. Now, would I have preferred for him to attack the Koch brothers from the left rather than attacking them from the right? Sure, but, you know... I'm a reasonable guy. I'll take any attack on the Koch brothers. <laughs> um, so this was um, this was seemingly out of nowhere because if he was going to attack anybody, I wouldn't have expected him to attack the Koch brothers in such a direct way, really name dropping them, because what he's doing here is he's kind of biting the hands that feed the Republican Party without the Koch brothers. They lose millions of dollars every election cycle. So for him to attack them, I love it. Now, there's some truth to what he's saying when he states that he made the Koch brothers richer with his tax plan. Because look, he's been trying to push his tax scam as a working class tax cut, but he finally came out and admitted in an attack against the Koch brothers that he made the rich richer. So when it comes to the Koch brothers, the International Business Times actually crunched the numbers and found out just how much richer Donald Trump is making them every single year. And it's pretty significant. So as Alex Koch explains, a new analysis has found that political mega donors Charles and David Koch and or the businesses they operate could make between $1 billion and $1.4 billion more each year, thanks to the tax breaks and legislation passed in December by Republican members of Congress. The two brothers are currently worth a combined $104.4 billion. Nonpartisan tax experts concluded that the bill, which lowers income taxes, corporate taxes, and offers numerous special interest tax breaks, offers the majority of the gains to America's wealthiest individuals. The top 1% of Americans will get 83% of the tax benefits in 2027. So Donald Trump passes these tax cuts, which makes the Koch brothers a lot richer, and now he's attacking them. So why is it that he suddenly turned against the Koch brothers? Well, I don't know. I can only speculate. But basically, it seems as though the Koch brothers are 
kind of turning against Republicans Maybe. So there's a new article out by Slate that explains how Charles Koch recently indicated that he could potentially be willing to work with Democrats if, quote, ideals align. So the article states, billionaire Charles Koch says he and his network of big political donors don't want to be automatically associated with the Republican Party anymore. In a rare on-the-record interview with reporters, Koch said he would be happy to work with Democrats if they share the same values. Quote, I don't care what initials are in front or after somebody's name. I'd like there to be many more politicians who would embrace and have the courage to run on a platform that aligns with his values, Koch said. The industrialist seemed to suggest the conservative network he leads could be a bit more strict about where it puts its cash, noting that he regrets supporting some politicians who didn't come through with their promises. They say they're going to be for these principles that we espouse, and then they aren't, Koch said. We're going to more directly deal with that and hold people responsible for these commitments. Now, what is he talking about specifically when it says that he, you know, he contributes to politicians who don't end up following through on the promises they made? Well, recently, there was an article that came out in the Wall Street Journal that states Coke Network criticizes Trump trade policy at donor meeting. Charles Koch warns against protectionism in video shown at three-day gathering in Colorado Springs. So we're kind of getting a little bit closer as to what might be fueling Donald Trump's sudden, um, I guess, hatred, you could say, of the Koch brothers. Certainly, he doesn't like being criticized by the Koch brothers, but think about really how nervy the Koch brothers are. He, at least Charles Koch, anyways, is saying he might be willing to buy off Democratic Party politicians if their ideals align. Now, what's he saying here? He's saying, if you can make me some promises and actually give me policy concessions, then I'd be willing to donate to you instead of Republicans. So if the Koch brothers are vocalizing their disagreements with Donald Trump's administration and also considering openly switching teams here, then Donald Trump probably doesn't like that. So he decided to lash out against them on Twitter. Now, here's what I'm curious about. How will Democrats respond to Charles Koch's offer? Are they going to basically tell the Kochs to take that money and shove it up their asses? Or will they welcome the Koch brothers with open arms and say, well, welcome Charles and David, you're now part of the resistance. It wouldn't surprise me if Democrats did, in fact, embrace the Koch brothers because that's how far they've fallen and they know that they need money to defeat Republicans. So this is one of many avenues they can take to actually um, potentially win back Congress and beat Donald Trump. But really, what they don't realize is that if they did embrace the Koch brothers, I'm not saying that they will. I wouldn't be surprised if they did. But if they, if they become even more corrupt and beholden to corporate interests and the millionaire and billionaire class, that's going to hurt their chances. Because working class voters, who you're supposed to be looking out for, Democrats, they're not going to come out and vote for you if you're doing the bidding of someone like the Koch brothers, Charles and David Koch. Get the fuck out of here. But getting back to the original point of this segment, um, Donald Trump's attack on the Koch brothers, it honestly, it made me very happy to see that. Because if anybody needs to be called out, it's the Koch brothers. They've gotten away with buying off politicians, funneling millions of dollars into all of our elections, and it's just, it's unacceptable. No millionaire or billionaire should be buying off politicians, but they've basically made this an art, 
And they've gotten so many policy concessions that spending millions of dollars is just the drop in the bucket to them because they end up getting that money back in the form of policy concessions. They end up making more money in return. That donation to politicians is an investment and they absolutely are seeing huge returns, which is why they continue to buy politicians. So I like that Donald Trump is doing something that will create a wedge between the Republican Party and the Koch brothers. I wish that he would be more critical of individuals like Sheldon Adelson. I would love to see an attack on Sheldon soon. Um, but really, I don't want Trump's attack on the Koch brothers to drive them to the Democratic Party. I want his attack on the Koch brothers to drive them the fuck out of politics altogether. So, um, you know, it's been a while since Donald Trump has said anything that even made me slightly satisfied. But when I saw this, I'm not going to lie, there's a pretty big smile on my face because these are really egregious individuals. And even if Donald Trump is also a political goon himself to see these assholes all turn on each other, I fucking love it. <laughs> so I know that this might be a little bit difficult to believe, but there was once a time when Donald Trump claimed that it would be Mexico who'd pay for the wall that he wants to build on our southern border. Now, if you don't remember, let me refresh your memory. I would build a great wall, and nobody builds walls better than me, believe me. And I'll build them very inexpensively. I will build a great, great wall on our southern border, and I will have Mexico pay for that wall. Yeah. Mark my words. Yeah. Those were the good old days, weren't they? <laughs> So, of course, now that he's president, that is a position that's untenable. So, if he really wants the border wall, which I'm assuming he obviously does, right? Because this was his number one campaign promise. So, you've got to try to deliver if you want to be reelected in 2020. So, what he's trying to do now is find someone to fund the border wall. And that someone is you. He wants your tax dollars to fund it since, obviously, Mexico isn't going to pay for this. Now, what's interesting is that he's proving how far he'll go to guarantee funding for his border wall. So he tweeted, I would be willing to shut down government if the Democrats do not give us the votes for border security, which includes the wall, must get rid of lottery, catch and release, etc. And finally go to system of immigration based on merit. We need great people coming into our country. Now, knowing that shutting down the government right before the midterm elections in November would basically be political suicide for Republicans. This was essentially their response. What the hell did you just say? So clearly, they're not in favor of shutting down the government to fund Donald Trump's border wall, and they spoke out against the idea of shutting down the government pretty vocally. But since they were so vocal and communicating to President Donald Trump that this isn't something that he wants to be pushing for, because certainly it wouldn't help the cause of helping Republicans maintain control of Congress, well, clearly Donald Trump decided to um, back off of this plan to shut down the government. I'm just kidding. If we don't get border security, after many, many years of talk within the United States, I would have no problem doing a shutdown. It's time we had proper border security. We're the laughing stock of the world. We have the worst immigration laws anywhere in the world. Of course he doubled down. This, this is what I really like. Donald Trump is someone who puts his foot in his mouth at least 
twice a day on certain issues. He always speaks, he talks and talks and talks and talks, and really, it would behoove him to just stop talking and listen once in a while. But he can't help himself. He's got to continue to say just what he feels instinctively. Now, my question to Donald Trump, since he's now seeking out funding for his border wall, is how are we going to pay for it? I mean, we have a deficit that is exploding because of Donald Trump's tax cuts for the rich. The country is in debt. And you think we can afford this border wall? How are we going to pay for this, Donald Trump? I mean, they ask us this question whenever we talk about policies like Medicare for All. So justify, prove to us that you think it's a good idea that we spend a dime on something that will basically be symbolic and make you and your supporters feel better, won't do anything to solve the immigration crisis this country faces, but it would make you feel better. So explain to us why us spending another penny on this while people are dying and going bankrupt due to a lack of health insurance, while people are working longer hours for lower wages. Explain to me why you think that's more important than the well-being of American citizens. Explain that to us, Donald Trump. He can't. And my question is, how do his supporters not feel disenchanted with him because clearly he said Mexico would pay for the wall. He, he explicitly said this, and now he's not even trying to maintain this position because he can't. So how do you not view him as a liar if you're a Donald Trump supporter? Well, it's, it's very clear that Donald Trump is an individual who has this cult of personality where people don't necessarily care about the promises, but... They're willing to believe anything he has to say because they view him as a benevolent politician who is always looking out for their best interests. So, you know, sometimes he may lie to them. Sometimes he may do a 180 on things that they previously cared about. But at the end of the day, Donald Trump is all-knowing and all-good. And that's all that they care about. There's a portion of his base that will never leave him. So, um, I don't feel as though I'm one of the individuals that has this visceral knee-jerk reaction to it. I just think it's unnecessary. It's stupid. I mean, a large portion, what is it, 40% of individuals who are here illegally, they didn't cross the border. They just, they had a visa and it expired and they remained in the country. So, I mean, if you really want to solve the immigration crisis, Republicans, they're in power now. They can, they can pass comprehensive immigration reform. They could do what they want, but they're not doing that. They want the border wall because it's symbolic. That's all that this is about. But you know, unfortunately, that symbolism is important to the Republican Party base and more specifically to Donald Trump's diehard supporters because Donald Trump represents the wall. When you ask the supporters, a lot of times they'd say during the campaign that the wall was the number one reason why they were excited about Donald Trump. So, you know, it it's on him to deliver that wall to his base. And now it doesn't even matter that Mexico isn't going to pay for it. He's trying to do, you know, these this mental gymnastics and say, well, you know, we have a trade deficit with Mexico. So if we, if we fudge the numbers here and there, then eventually they'll, they'll make it up for it. They're not going to pay for the wall. And it doesn't work that way, Donald Trump. It doesn't work that way. So, you know, whatever he does, he's got to make sure he gets the wall because if he doesn't, then his entire presidency will have been a failure because that's the one thing that his supporters sent him to the White House to do. And now he's struggling to deliver on it, which is why he's advocating for it so vocally and even willing to shut down the government and state that he's willing to shut down the government if he doesn't get this wall. Because he knows 
if he doesn't at least start making some progress towards the wall soon, 2020 isn't going to go too well for him. And I'm not going to be one of those individuals that says he has no chance in 2020. I do think that it's possible Donald Trump could be reelected, but certainly going into 2020, he'd be a lot more powerful if he gets that wall built. So that's why he wants to shut down the government. And he doesn't give a damn if it hurts congressional Republicans in the process, but good. Keep talking, Donald Trump, because you're only making our jobs easier. Hey everyone, I am here with Levy Sanders running to represent New Hampshire's first congressional district. Levy, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Yeah, it's it's really exciting that there is so many progressives running. I remember in 2016, I could count the number of progressive congressional candidates on my hand, and now I can't keep track. So it's a really great problem to have. And you're running in a race that has to be one of the most interesting this year because it is one of the most competitive districts in the country. Donald Trump won that race in 2016, or he took that district, and there's 19 candidates running. You are one of 11 Democrats running. So why jump into a seemingly chaotic situation? Because I know that the individual who holds that seat, um, her name is Carol Shea Porter. She won in 2016 and is stepping down two years later. So what made you want to get into the race? As you said, Michael, you know, this is this is an op open race. So, uh, you know, Carol Shea Porter did a really great job, decided that she was not going to run again. And I just thought about all of the issues and all the concerns that folks in New Hampshire are facing. I felt like I'd be a great candidate uh, to run. You know, I believe in a Medicare for all health care system that guarantees health care to every man, woman and child without out-of-pocket expenses. I believe in tuition-free public colleges and universities. We now have a situation, if you can actually believe this, Michael, in New Hampshire right now, it costs $33,750 to go to a state school. It's unbelievable. That's completely unbelievable. Also, we have to address the issue of paid equity for women. We are in 2018, and women get paid 79 cents to the dollar. For African-American, as Hispanic women, it's even it's far, far lower. So obviously, women deserve the whole dollar. Additionally, we have to deal with the issue right now in terms of minimum wage. The minimum wage in New Hampshire is $7.25 an hour. We need to have a $15 minimum wage. If you work 40 hours a week, you should not be living in poverty. We also have to deal with the issue of income and wealth inequality. There's two unbelievable things Michael, which is what's going on, which is just unbelievable. It's almost like third world country. You have 47% of Americans who have $400 to address a medical emergency and or simply if their car breaks down. Just think about that. We are the wealthiest country in the history of the world. And yet we have this unbelievable, uh, you know, just incredible situations going on. Furthermore, 75% of Americans have $700 to address a similar issue. So, you know, I've been working in, in legal services now for um, 18 years, uh, representing folks in a variety of different areas of law, uh, in, in including housing law, social security law, uh, public benefits law, uh, shelter law, uh, veterans law, a whole of other areas. And I just thought I, I am the best candidate right now uh, to take on the two folks who are the establishment Democrats. And, uh, you know, and I just really, really believe that I have the passion, the energy, 
uh, you know, and the skills to be the next congressman. Great. Uh, just for a point of clarification, when it comes to the gender pay gap, the 79 cent figure that you cited, a lot of people have looked at that methodology and found mm -hmm. out that the actual pay gap is more along the lines of four to six cents. But I still think that tackling that is really important because that adds up over time. So any inequality in pay certainly needs to be addressed. And you touched on a great point in that the difference between white women and women of color is a lot larger. So definitely, these are things that I hear normal Americans talking about that it seems like the Democratic Party itself isn't necessarily addressing. But now we have this wave of progressive candidates coming in, yourself included. And one thing that I wanted to ask you, though, because there are 11 Democrats, you're one, you're there are 10 other opponents that you have in this race, so it's very chaotic. And what I've noticed is that more establishment pro-corporate Democrats, they've adopted the rhetoric that progressives use. So, for example, DNC Chairman Tom Perez, he'll say healthcare is a right. When you push him on that and ask him, does that mean Medicare for all? He kind of dodges the question. So right. how do people in New Hampshire 1 understand that you are the more progressive candidate, that you're basically the go-to individual? You're the Bernie crat. You're the progressive Right. How, how do you get that message, message across in a race that is so saturated by Democrats? Great point. Well, first, of all, I've been endorsed by the Democrats, so I feel very fortunate about that. But as you said, what, what goes on with a lot of establishment folks is they talk about the issue of access to health care. Michael, you can have access to a million-dollar yacht that doesn't mean you can actually afford it. Exactly. And that's a really important point that you really have to articulate, and you're absolutely correct. When people talk about universal health care or that we, we, we want to assure that everybody has the ability to get health care, you have to listen to folks. Until they talk about Medicare for all, a single-payer health care, they're not really uh, – they're being disingenuous. Right. That's free uh, at the and, point and, of and, delivery and, specifically. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, exactly. He's talking about the issue of no co-payments, no deductibles and no premiums. That's where, where that's what you're listening to. We know even in addition to that, Michael, right now we have a scenario in terms of on Medicare. What's incredible about Medicare is, you know, I, t I listen to so many seniors. I talk to so many seniors and they talk about the fact that Medicare does not provide glasses. It does not provide vision care. It does not provide dentures. It's not right. Dental care. It doesn't provide hearing aids. Hearing aids can cost you $15,000. So under a Medicare for all healthcare system, all that will be covered. Furthermore, the issue of dental care will also be covered, which as you know, is, is so extraordinary. It, it's so needed uh, throughout the country and in particular here in New Hampshire. Right, right, absolutely. And I wanted to talk to you about the, dy the uh, dynamics in this race. Your campaign has gotten national coverage but it's because you have a father who's the most popular politician in the country, Bernie Sanders. But it's not like this race is easy for you by any stretch of the imagination. Voter data, um, it costs, what is it? Um, I think that 35000 30, $37,500. That's exactly right. So you had four out of 11 uh, folks right now in this race who've decided to take that. So you have seven candidates who decided they were not going to take it either because economically they couldn't vote or they just thought it was just outrageous that everybody should not have that opportunity so you're absolutely right it's the most expensive anywhere in the country so what are the other disadvantages that you're facing because 
I know that debates are an issue. It seems like nobody wants to come together for a debate, which is, right. I mean, if you have right. ideas and you want to run, wouldn't you want to express them? So can you kind of talk about what's sure. going on in this race and some yep. of the biggest hurdles that you're facing? Sure. Uh, you know, not just me, lack of debates. Uh, you know, we have, a, we have a situation where the New Hampshire Democratic Party decided that they will not have any debates. That is antithetical to democracy. As I hear from so many people, everybody that, that I talk to say, we want a debate. We want to, you to be able to differentiate between the other 10 candidates in the race. But also, we want the strongest Democrat to take on the Republican in the general election. So I do want to ask you about the similarities between your race and the 2016 election, because anyone who's progressive knows that the DNC essentially rigged it against your dad, Bernie Sanders. They made it so that way um, the DNC held debates during national sporting events, uh, during the holidays. Uh, we know about the joint fundraising agreement from Donna Brazil that allowed Hillary Clinton, before she even became the official nominee, to take control of the DNC's funding and um, their press releases. So are there any similarities between your race and 2016? Yeah, there are. First of all, what's really remarkable is that, is that my father got 65 to 70% of the vote in District 1. So a lot of people kind of see, and I listen to people, and they say, oh, my goodness, Levy, this is having the same things happen all over again. We have a scenario where the New Hampshire Democratic Party will not sponsor one debate. Not one debate. We have serious issues regarding difference between Medicare for all, the issue of access to health care, the Affordable Care Act, $15 minimum wage, $12 minimum wage. So these are really issues that people are really, really want to hear from the candidates so they can differentiate themselves. Uh, in addition, obviously, it costs $37,500 in order to get uh, a voter checklist, which is extremely important. Uh, and just the whole entire process about how difficult it is uh, to be able to communicate effectively uh, with the New Hampshire Democratic Party. So there's just a whole lot of things which are so similar. You think they would have learned this thing, but they've decided to act the same exact way that occurred in 2016. Has there been anyone from the DCCC that has basically subtly suggested that maybe you drop out? Because we learned about the uh, Levi Tilleman incident in Colorado, where right, they right. were trying to get him right. to drop out. Steny Hoyer was wanting him to exit sure. the race in favor sure. of Jason sure. Crow. Anything like that going on? Well, the DCCC did contact me. I, I, decided, I didn't really get back in contact with them, but I, 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 can't, I can't say that. I can say ultimately that they're, they're not too excited uh, about a Medicare for all uh, healthcare system. And we know, as I said before, that, that you know, Chris Pappas, they were working with Chris Pappas in 2015 in terms of uh, robocalls, and they've given $2,500 uh, to Maura uh, Sullivan. So, so clearly they want the Democratic establishment definitively. They don't want somebody who believes in tuition-free public college universities, uh, Medicare for all, a $15 minimum wage, as well as talk about what's going on with income and wealth inequality. I can definitely definitively tell you that, Michael. I do want to ask you about organizations like Justice Democrats, Our Revolution. Um, are they responding to you? Can you talk a little bit about the organizations that are kind of sure, sure. at play here? Well, uh, you know, right now, um, you know, I've got tremendous endorsements from a lot of a lot of folks. I got um, a Ro Khanna, who was, was one of, who was, was an expert on um, Medicare for all. I um, mean, as you know, right now we have incredibly, uh, you know, doing some really great work in terms of the healthcare caucus. We have 17 members of the House, 
we have uh, you know either I can't take but it's either 17 or 18 folks in the Senate who believe in a Medicare for all healthcare system, and also virtually every single presidential candidate in 2020 who's running a Democrat believes in a Medicare for all healthcare system. So we're making tremendous progress. Furthermore, we have 59 percent right now of Americans who believe that we have a Medicare for all healthcare system, and yet the two candidates who are getting the most recognition because of how much money they've spent are getting, uh, you know, simply don't believe in a Medicare for all healthcare system. Uh, and they talk about the issue of access to healthcare or, or they talk about the Affordable Care Act. And the reason why it's important to differentiate between the Affordable Care Act and Medicare for all, the Affordable Care Act did a really good job of getting people insured. But the problem ultimately is that people's Co-payments, deductibles, and premiums are just way too high, and we know that premiums are just are just soaring. So that's why we definitively need a Medicare for all single-payer healthcare system. Right, and I like that you are unequivocally saying Medicare for all. You're not saying, well, maybe we'll move there one day. We'll start with a public option and then get there. I mean, I think the time has come to where nobody in America dies or goes bankrupt because they don't have insurance or they have insurance, but the deductible is too high or it's too expensive and they can't afford it. And maybe they they lose their insurance because they change jobs. So yeah, I, I like that. Now there's really this momentum for Medicare for all like I've ever seen. I mean, I, I'm 30 years old and for the most part, I've always been in support of Medicare for all, but now I've, I've never seen this grassroots push. I've never seen candidates running for Congress running just unequivocally on Medicare for all. Um, and it's really exciting. Now, even if we have a bunch of candidates running for Medicare for all, one thing that is always interesting to me is that there's a lot of corporate money being spent. I think that the reason why your opponents don't like Medicare for all is probably because they're taking money from health insurance um, industry uh, companies and whatnot. But what I wanted to ask you is you're not taking any corporate PAC money. So that's right. Why do you feel disadvantaging yourself because that's what's happening if you're not yep. taking this this much money yep. and your yep. opponent raised what 1.5 million you said yep. Yep. so and, why and is the, it and the other person probably raised about seven seven hundred thousand approximately yep. yeah it, yep. that's absurd for a, you know a house race why do you feel as though it's so important to not take the money and to disadvantage yourself yep. why is that so important to you and if you get elected what can we do to stop money in good. politics good well, basically because Citizens United is, is, is a complete disaster. You have a scenario where the Supreme Court determined that corporations are people, Michael. I have never met a corporation who's a person, but you can introduce me to somebody you know, in terms of a corporation, but, but a corporation is not a person. So that's the first issue. So we need to get money out of politics. And that's why it's so important that we have campaign finance reform and that we, deal with, and that we have a 28th Amendment that says it's one person, one vote. So I feel very proud uh, in terms of all of the donations uh, that I've gotten from folks uh, throughout the country, including uh, uh, in, in New Hampshire. And that's, and that's the way we got to run it because I don't want to be beholden to corporation and special interest. Right. And that's super important. And because you're not taking corporate money, it's really easy for you to come out here and endorse very popular policies that would otherwise offend corporate donors in the event you had them. I mean, Medicare for all is obviously one of them. Uh, tuition-free public college. 
Um, now, I want to ask you, because this is something that we're hearing with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. When she was sure. elected, she was asked this. Uh, your dad, Bernie, is always asked this. How are you going to pay for, for for this? They never ask this about wars, right? But they right. always ask progressives when we want to help people. How are you going to pay for this? So in the event you're elected, you get, you know, an interview on MSNBC, Fox News. Sure. How do you sure. respond to that question? Because I feel like there needs to be a consensus right. in terms of right. how progressives address this. Sure. Well, the first issue is that it's not a debate because people are more important than money. Mm -hmm. So we definitively have to pay for it because, you know, as you know, Michael, we've had situations, horror stories where, where folks were, not was one woman decided she didn't want to go to an ambulance when, when she had a horrible uh, uh, accident that, that occurred on the T in, in Boston. And another situation, I think you saw it today uh, in, in terms of somebody who died as a result of, of, some, of, uh, of amb somebody in the ambulance, a driver or whatever, thinking that they couldn't even afford it. So that's the first issue. But basically, the way we pay, we, we, let's look at a couple of things. Right now, corporations are, are just ripping people off left and right. We know that a quarter of corporations don't pay anything in taxes. Amazon gets a tax rebate, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to address that issue. We deal with the military industrial complex. We have to look at, there, there's so many other ways in terms of where there's just so much tremendous waste. Right now, a third of the cost right now in terms of the private healthcare system uh, right now is as a result of administrative fees. So we need to get rid of it. When we get rid of all that paperwork, Michael, as you know, we're going to save 33%. So I could talk for hours on this issue, but the simple fact is it's about priorities. Mm -hmm. and, the sim and, and the simple fact is, is that people are demanding that they're not that they're not going to go bankrupt. They're not going to have profound levels of anxiety. That they're going to wait eight to twelve you know weeks, sometimes even to go to a doctor because they're terrified that, that they're going to get an exorbitant uh, uh, bill. But also, Mike, when we talk about paying for it, we have to look objectively speaking that small business owners are in, are in favor of, of Medicare for all healthcare. Even somebody such as a Warren Buffett or General Motors or billionaires, because they understand how incredibly expensive it is to their business. So all I can tell you right now is a lot of folks are really interested. You know, we're going to work more, you know, more, more uh, in terms of more of the economics. But overall, I can tell you that, that it's definitely something that can be paid. And the most important thing ultimately to understand is this. When people say, oh, my goodness, this is going to be really costly. Let's analyze it. Right now, it costs anywhere between, say, $17,000, $18,000, say, for a family of four, um, you know, to have health insurance. Well, what happens if, you, if you're only paying $5,000 a year? You're saving $13,000. So overall, you're, you're gonna, people are going to benefit. And when people understand that, they understand that, that they are going to get so much more. They're not going to have to pay with co-payments, deductibles, uh, and premiums. Um, I, I assure you that, that, that people will feel that much more confident about the healthcare system. So getting into other policy issues, can you talk a little bit about tuition-free public colleges and universities? Yeah, as, as I mentioned, you know, right here in uh, New Hampshire, we have the most expensive uh, college in the country. Um, you know, we have a situation where it's $33,750 actually to go to um, the university. It's actually University University of New Hampshire. Uh, and when I hear from so many folks, particularly college students, they are absolutely adamant that we need a tuition-free public college and university. We also have to deal with the issue of student debt. Uh, there's no reason why a student should be paying more than 3% in, in terms of a, 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 a loan. 
we have a scenario where people are increasingly just choosing not to go to college and or university because their anxiety is that when they're done after four years, they're going to have just an extraordinary debt uh, and they may be paying off for 15 or 20 uh, years. So we need to encourage folks to go to college and or to go to university. And we know very clearly that if you go to college and or university, you will make a lot more money that if, you know, obviously you have a high school education. And what's really remarkable is that a college education is pretty much what a high school education was, you know, 15 uh, or, or years ago. So it's essential that everybody have a college education. However, if you choose not to have a college uh, education or, or, you know, something you, you decide you're not going to do, um, you should have the opportunity to go to trade schools or technical schools, which will allow folks to make eighteen, twenty dollars uh, an hour as as a plumber uh, and or uh, electrician. It's not, and not only does it make um, you know economic sense, but it's also the right thing to do. And on the subject of school loans that already exist, would you be in favor of student loan debt cancellation? Because this is something that I've been hearing increasingly more from progressives. Um, we have a Green Party candidate, uh, Kenneth Mejia, who's proposing this. Yep. We have a Democrat in Hawaii, Kaniala Ng, who's proposing this. What do you think about that particular issue? Well, I'd have to, I, I, love, I love it. I think it's a great idea. I have to look at it in terms of how, how that's going to work in, in terms of be successful uh, to get it passed in the United States Congress. But I think, I think it's a really great idea. I'd, I'd have to look at it more in depth. But clearly, of course, we need to make it you know, as easy as possible for people to get out of debt. So there's a lot of different options, but I think that's, it's definitely an option to, to consider. So you're definitely open to it, though? I'm absolutely, absolutely open to the suggestion. Absolutely. Okay, perfect. Because I, I like, I do like the talk of tuition-free public colleges and universities because I think at this point that's kind of a common sense thing given the state of the economy and how you need an education to get a better job and make more money ultimately. But I, I feel like a lot of the solutions that we see proposed for individuals already in debt is just like capping the payments or you know right. lowering the interest rates. And right. I think that it's it's a little bit easier to basically communicate a message that will really resonate with students if you just say something simple like student loan debt cancellation because it's simple, it's easy, you know, it's it's marketable. And I think that right. it makes sense. I think it's fair given this economy and how much um, school costs. Um, it does. Not only that, but it also makes economic sense. That's the most important thing. You know, when somebody graduates from college, they're going to make more money and therefore they're going to spend more in the economy and it's going to, the, the economy is going to do a lot more. Uh, what we, we know that wealthy folks, uh, you know, they take their money and either they're buy a yacht or they go to the Cayman Islands. Right. So it's absolutely worthwhile. And overall, it helps the economy in a number of ways uh, when, when, when you have a college education. Oh, 100%. So you've got my endorsement. But if people watching this are sold and they don't live in New Hampshire, what can they do to help you? Can we phone bank for you across the country? And if we do live in New Hampshire, what would be the best way to get you elected? Yeah. Well, the first thing, obviously, is SandersForCongress.com. Uh, we don't take any money from corporation or lobbyists. So whatever folks can do in that area in, in terms of um, providing any type of contributions would be wonderful. Uh, also, we would love to have uh, volunteers. So, again, they, they, they just go right, right to that uh, website and they can sign up uh, to become a volunteer. Perfect. Well, I, I want to close with one last question. So in an interview sure. with Chris Cuomo on CNN, um, no. Your dad, Bernie Sanders, was asked if he would endorse you, and he said, no, he's against political dynasties. Your son's running for Congress. You say, I won't endorse him because I don't like dynastic I, politics. 
Why? It's only two of you. I got two in my own family. That's no dynasty. Well, actually, I have more than two. My son is running on Medicare for All, raising the minimum right. wage. He's running on programs that He's like a better-looking Bernie, that I guy. Think, I think, I think <laughs> that, you know, I don't believe in dynastic politics. He's on his own. He's going to speak to the people of New Hampshire, and I'm sure he's going to do very well. So let me ask you this. Are you, as a congressional candidate, willing to endorse your dad's senatorial bid for 2018? Well, man, it's complicated. See, I don't believe in dynastic politics either, but yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I, well, I, what, let, let, let me let me say. So I mean, let me. I wonder, people, because what happens to CNN? They always ask me in terms. Of, you're so similar to your father. Let me differentiate myself from my father. I'm a size 14 sneaker. He's got 11 and a half. I'm six foot two and a half, and he's only six feet. <laughs> but here's the things that we're, we're similar. We both are related to Larry David. That's why we have such a profound That's personality. That's why we have such a great sense of humor so he's he, he's a third cousin of larry and i'm a fourth cousin uh but no I, I think you know what my father has done is is really extraordinary uh in, in terms of him really talking about these issues that, that now are all over the country regarding medicare for all tuition-free public college and universities paid equity for, for women paid family and medical leave a 15 dollars minimum wage uh, in addressing the very serious issue in terms of income and wealth inequality. But you know what? My father doesn't really need endorsement. He's, he's doing pretty well. And, and I think there's there's probably, I, I think you can bet on Bernie Sanders to win uh, for United States Senate in 2018. Uh, that's fair enough. I think that, um, I think he'll, he'll do okay. <laughs> <laughs> Being the most popular politician in the country kind of gives you, you know, a slight advantage. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would say just a tinch, but he's, 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 yeah, I, I would, I would agree. I think he's probably like 75, 76% in terms of favorability rating. So yeah, he's, 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 he's doing pretty well. That's remarkable. Well, thank you so much, Levy, for coming on the program. I appreciate it. And I will be watching this race. I would encourage others to do so because it is really crazy. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, so hopefully um, you could pull this off. When's the primary? September 11th. September 11th. Okay, we'll be keeping an eye on that. That, Levy that, that, unto, that unto itself is a crazy time to have a primary. Right, but I mean. Anyways, but yeah, so <laughs> it, it is It is September 11th. And, and really, this, as I said, this campaign is going to come down to the fact, uh, you know, about Medicare for all, as well as tuition free public college universities, a $15 uh, minimum wage and addressing what's going on in terms of income and wealth uh, inequality, as, as you know, which is getting outrageous. You now have a situation where three people in this country own more wealth than the bottom half of America. And we have a guy named Sheldon Adelson who gave $30 million to the Republican Party, but that's nothing. The Koch brothers are going to spend $400 million in, in, in this in, in 2018 to try to elect Republicans. So that's why it's so important to go to SandersForCongress.com and donate whatever you can. Yeah, give to progressives who need it and fight the machine. So uh, thanks for coming on, Levy. Thank you so much. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Hopefully you enjoyed the program. If you'd like to see more, you could check out humanistreport.com. Before we leave, I'd like to send a special thank you to all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors and also to my fantastic guest, Levy Sanders. Next week, we will have Kaniala Ng on the program. He is a progressive running to represent Hawaii. So that will be a fantastic show. I hope to see you all there. Have a great day.